Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming to Class Day from the great state of Arizona, Senator Jeff Flake. Thank you so much. Dean Manning, Dean Sells, Peter Krause, graduates, class marshals, family, faculty, it's wonderful to be here today. And how about this Arizona weather? I have one thing to say. You're welcome. <laughs> it is such an honor to stand before you today on this very special day of celebration. It's accomplishment for you and your families. This is the annual season of advice giving. That's why I'm here. I'm very much hoping you can give me some advice. <laughs> you see, I'm going to be on the job market soon, so I'd appreciate anything you can do for me. But I am truly privileged to get this invitation. Congratulations to the Harvard Law Class of 2018. Now, to be here in this place that has produced so many of our nation's leaders and our finest legal minds is deeply humbling, an institution that gave the world Oliver Wendell Holmes, a majority of the Supreme Court, and not only Barack, but Michelle Obama, too. It all leaves me wondering how I got this invitation. It might have come by mistake, but thank you. This day takes me back to my own decadent celebration after graduation at my alma mater, BYU. Bowl after bowl of Rocky Road, double fudge brownie, butter pecan. When you're Mormon, ice cream's all you've got. <laughs> but I'm not only humbled to be at this place, I'm also humbled by the moment. This moment in the life of our country. You see, you're set to inherit the world just in the nick of time. I'm also especially humbled given the fact that I come to you today from the political class. In utter seriousness, it's I who could benefit from listening to you today rather than speaking to you. I'm not sure there's much distilled wisdom imparted from Washington these days especially given what has lately become the tawdriness of my profession. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Be. One of you changed the lives of just 10 people. And each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people and another 10. We did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations in the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can 
change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if you could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen, and here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You didn't know this kid, okay? We did it. They're looking for help. We call me They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. Changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. I'm here today as a representative of a co-equal branch of government, a branch that is failing its constitutional obligations to counteract the power of the President, and in so doing is dishonoring itself <laughs> and in so doing is dishonoring itself at a critical moment in the life of our nation. And so, with humility, let me suggest that perhaps it's best to consider what I have to say today as a cautionary tale about the rule of law and its fragility, about our democratic norms and how hard-fought and how vulnerable they are, about the independence of our system of justice and how critically important it is to safeguard it from malign actors who would casually destroy that independence for their own purposes and without a thought for the consequences about the crucial predicate for all these cherished American values, truth, empirical, objective truth. And lastly, about the necessity to defend these values and institutions that you will soon inherit, even if that means sometimes standing alone, even if it means risking something very important to you, maybe even your career, because there are times when circumstances may call on you to risk your career in favor of your principles. But you and your country will be better for it. You can go elsewhere for a job, but you cannot go elsewhere for a soul. Now, not to be unpleasant, but I do bring news from our nation's capital. First, the good news. Your national leadership is, well, not good at all. Our presidency has been debased by a figure who seemingly has a bottomless appetite for destruction and division and only a passing familiarity with how the Constitution works. And our Article I branch of government, the Congress, that's me, is utterly supine in the, visit, in the uh, face of the moral vandalism that flows from the White House daily. 
I do not think that the founders could have anticipated that the beauty of their invention might someday founder on the rocks of reality television and that Congress would be such willing accomplices to this calamity. Our Our most ardent enemies doing their worst, and they are doing their worst, couldn't hurt us more than we are hurting ourselves. Now you might reasonably ask, where's the good news in that? Well, simply put, we may have hit bottom. And that's also the bad news. In a rare convergence, the good news and the bad news are the same. Our leadership is not good, but it probably can't get much worse. This is it, if you've been wondering what the bottom looks like. This is what it looks like when you stress test all of the institutions that undergird our constitutional democracy at the same time. You could say that we are witnesses to history, and if it were possible to divorce ourselves from the obvious tragedy of this debacle, I suppose it might even be interesting. The same way some diseases are interesting to medical researchers. But this is an experience that we could and should have avoided. Getting to this state of distress did not naturally occur. Rather, it was thoroughly man-made. This disease of our polity is far too serious not to be recognized for what it is. The damage it threatens to do to our vital organs is far too great for us to carry on as if all is well. All is not well. We have a sickness of the spirit. To complete the medical metaphor, you might say that we're now in critical condition. How did we arrive at such a moment of great peril, wherein the President of the United States publicly threatens on Fox and Friends, historians will note, to interfere in the administration of justice, and seems to think that the office confers on him the ability to decide who and what gets investigated and who and what does not. And just this week, the President, offering an outlandish rationale, ordered an investigation into the investigation of the Russian attack on our electoral process. Not to defend the country against future attacks, mind you, but to defend himself. Obviously, ordering investigations is not a legitimate use of presidential power. I pick this egregious example of recent presidential conduct not because, because it is rare in terms of the President's body of work, but because it so perfectly represents what we have tragically grown accustomed to in the past year and a half. Who would have thought that we would ever see encouragement coming from the White House for chants at rallies calling for the jailing of a defeated political opponent? When you don't even know what the limits of presidential power are, you might not even care when you're abusing that power. How did this happen to us, and what might we learn from it? How did we get swept up in this global resurgence of the authoritarian impulse, which has democracies teetering on the brink, strong men placing themselves above the law? And in our own country, a leader who reveres some of the most loathsome enemies of democracy in our time. Have we really grown tired of democracy? Are we watching its passing? 
cheered on by the America First crowd, even as we cast aside global institutions that have fostered freedom and peace for more than a half century. For just a moment, let us marvel at the miracle that is the rule of law. We have seldom been moved to pause for such an appreciation, as we have been busy taking it for granted and assuming its inviolability, like gravity. But unlike Newton's laws, the rule of law was neither innate nor inevitable. What goes, down, what goes up must come down is a piece of cake compared to curbing the impulses of man and asking free people to abide norms and rules that form a country and foster civilization. It took centuries of war and sacrifice and social upheaval and more war and great civil rights struggles to establish the foundational notion that no one is either above the law or unworthy of the protections afforded by a robust legal system, a system that took us from feudal civility A system that took us from feudal civility to a constitutional model that is the envy of the world and will continue to be with your help. We trace the beginnings of this radical egalitarianism, the awesome and leveling effect of the law to the glorious revolution of 1688, which saw the death of the divine right of kings, as even the monarch from that point forward would be subject to the rule of law and the Parliament even threw in a Bill of Rights for good measure. But we are now testing the durability of this idea that William III had the good sense to agree to, an idea that was then forged and tempered over ensuing centuries, and we are seeing its vulnerabilities. In other parts of the world where democracy's roots are not so deep, we are seeing it being torn down with sickening ease and with shocking speed. And worse, we are seeing the rise of simulated democracies, Potemkin democracies, democracies in appearance and effect only. Rule of thumb, if the only acceptable outcome in a matter of law or justice is a result that is satisfactory to the leader, then you might be living in a democracy that is in trouble. If the leader attacks the legitimacy of any institution that does not pay him obeisance, say, the independent judiciary or the free press, you might live in a democracy that is in trouble. Further to that point, when a figure in power reflexively calls any press that does not suit him fake news, it is that person who should be the figure of suspicion, not the press. It will be the work of your generation to make sure that this degradation of democracy does not continue, to see that our current flirtation with lawlessness and authoritarianism does not become a heritable trait passed on from this presidency. The rule of law is an elemental value, a value that preceded and gave rise to our Constitution. It is not an ideology subject to the pendulum swings of politics or something to be given a thumbs up or a thumbs down during a call to your favorite morning show. 
It is the basis of our system of self-government. America without the rule of law is no longer America. I am a conservative Republican, a throwback to the days when those words actually meant something, before the collapse of our politics into the rank tribalism that we currently endure. My sounding this alarm against the government that was elected under a Republican banner and that calls itself conservative makes me no less Republican or conservative. And opposing the President and much of what he stands for is not an act of apostasy. It is, rather, an act of fidelity. Because we forget this fact far too often, and it bears repeating a thousand times, especially in times such as these, values transcend politics. Now, as a conservative Republican, I dare say that my idea of government may differ from the beliefs of many of you here. I will be thoroughly presumptuous and assume that in terms of policies prescriptions, we disagree on much. Call me crazy. But I have long believed that the only lasting solutions to the problems before us must involve both sides. Lawmaking should never be an exercise in revenge because vengeful people are myopic, self-interested, and not fit to lead. I believe that our government should include people who believe as I do just as I believe it should include people who believe as my friend Tim Kaine does or my friend Cory Booker does. I'll let Tim and Cory know you applauded. <laughs> the greatness of our system is that it is designed to be difficult. That is in order to force com uh, compromise and when you honor the system and seek to govern in good faith, the system works. Which brings us back to our current peril. It is a testament to our times and to the inflection point that we now face that I am here today. For setting aside the usual requirements of politics and the usual way that politics keeps score, the things that normally divide us seem trivial compared to the trials that have now been visited upon our democracy. In the face of these challenges, we agree on something far more important than a legislative program, even more important than our thoughts on the proper role of government in the economy and the lives of individuals. We agree on the need to safeguard the health and survival of constitutional democracy in America and the preservation of the American idea itself underpinning the constitutional system and that extraordinary idea that is under threat right now from the top. The values of the Enlightenment that led us to the creation of this idea of America, this unique experiment in, the world, in world history, are light years removed from the base, cruel, transactional brand of politics that at this moment some people mistakenly think is what it means to make America great. To be clear, we did not become great and will never be great by indulging and encouraging our very worst impulses. 
It doesn't matter how many red caps you sell. The historian John Meacham, in his splendid new book, The Soul of America, reassures us that history shows that we are frequently vulnerable to fear, bitterness, and strife. The good news, he says, is that we have come through such darkness before. Perhaps, but not with both nuclear weapons and Twitter. And certainly not with such an anomalous presidency as this one. But I take your point, Mr. Meacham, and I am heartened by it. We will get through this, of course. But we are, at the moment, we are in it. And we must face it squarely, because too much is at stake for us to turn away, to leave it to, to others to defend the things that we hold most dear. A culminating event such as the election of our current president scrambles normal binary uh, notions of politics. And I'm as disoriented as many of you here at this de-alignment de that we're experiencing. We find that many of the day's biggest issues simply don't break down neatly in familiar ideas of left versus right, but rather along these lines. Do you believe in democracy or not? Are you faithful to your country or to your party? Are you loyal to the Constitution or to a man? Do you reflexively ascribe the worst motives to your opponents, but somehow deny, excuse, or endorse every repulsive thing your compatriot does, says, or tweets? These questions have some of us wandering in the political wilderness. And it is in that wilderness where your wonderful letter of invitation reached me. Public Access America is on Instagram, sharing sneak peeks, episode art, snippets of the stories, and more. Search Big Brain Pod and follow, like, and comment on Instagram. Well, the wilderness suits me just fine. In fact, I so love the way Washington has become that in recent years, during congressional recesses, I've taken to stranding myself on deserted islands in the middle of the ocean just to de detoxify all the feelings of love out of my system. I'm not kidding here. I once spent a week alone, voluntarily marooned, on a tiny island called Jabinwad, a remote spit of sand and coconut trees in the central Pacific, about 7,000 miles from Washington. As penance and determined to test my survival skills, I brought no food or water relying solely on what I could catch or collect. That, it turned out, was the easier part. More difficult was dealing with the stultifying loneliness that set in on that first night and never left me. By day three, for companionship, I began to mark the hermit crabs that wandered through my camp with a number, just to see if they would reoccur. By the end of the week, I had 126 numbered friends. I still miss number 72. <laughs> he rarely left my side after developing an addiction to coconut scraps. I was less fond of number 12, who bit my or pinched my big toe. Now I wouldn't recommend such drastic measures to escape your own situation. But I hope that should you be presented with the choice, 
you too would eschew comfort and set out into the wilderness rather than compromise your conscience. From my cautionary tale to you today, I urge you to challenge all of your assumptions regularly. Recognize the good in your opponents. Apologize every now and then. Admit to mistakes. Forgive and ask for forgiveness. Listen more. Speak up more. Sometimes politics keeps us silent when we should speak. And if you find yourselves in a herd, crane your neck, look back there, check out your brand, ask yourself if it really suits you. I can say from personal experience, it's never too late to leave the herd. When you peel off from the herd, your equilibrium returns. Food tastes better. You sleep very well. Your mind is your own again. You cease being captive to some bad impulses and even worse ideas. It can strain relationships, to be sure. It can leave you eating alone in the Senate dining room every now and then. But that's okay. To revise and extend a remark the President himself may recognize, you might say that I like people whose minds weren't captured. That one was for you, Senator McCain. We're all pulling for you. Politically speaking, I have not changed my beliefs much at all, but my goodness how I have changed. How can you live through these abnormal times and not be changed? Our country needs us now. Our country needs you. We need each other, and it is a scoundrel who would prosper politically by turning us against each other. For our time, let us send a message into the future that we will not or we did not fail democracy, but that we renewed it. That a patchwork of populist resentments and authoritarian whims that for a while succeeded in its cynical mission of discord had the ultimate effect of shaking us from our complacency, reminding us who, of who we are and of what our responsibilities are to each other, of re reawakening us to our obligations as citizens. Let us be able to say in the future that we face these forces that would threaten our institutions and tear us apart, and that we said no. I leave you today with more good news and bad news. This time I'll start with the bad news which is, all of this is yours to fix. All of it. And of course, that is also the good news. All of this is yours to fix. And our country could not be more fortunate than to have people of your high character, strong principle, and often an awesome talent to soon take the helm. I grew up as a kid on the F-Bar Ranch in rural Arizona. And if we needed to gauge the condition of the range or measure the damage after a flood, we'd find the highest hill or butte and ride our horses to the top. From such a vista, we could dispatch cattle or cowboys to gather cattle, machinery to shore up roads, workers to repair fences, to restore some semblance of order. There are no tall buttes in Washington. 
But it is nonetheless our obligation to assess the condition of our politics, then to mitigate and repair the damage. This is a story of America, though, and we will be better for the hard lessons of this experience. We are a much better and more decent people than Washington shows us to be. We are a deeply resourceful and resilient nation, and our greatness is based on no one man, no one man who alone can fix it, but rather on enduring ideas of self-governance and the rule of law that have been the model of the world for centuries, ideas that can be mocked but not marred. No, there are no high buttes in Washington, but still we must gain the high ground and survey the damage. And the thing about gaining the high ground is that from up there, you can see beyond the damage, too. You can see everything, everything that is good and decent. That is the job before us, to get through this and beyond it. And you are just the ones to take us there. Thank you, and once again, congratulations to the Harvard Law Class of 2018.